This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is The Red Line. We interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. So as I write this script, it's Sunday night, bin night here in my house, which has recently become a bit of a highly contentious issue here on my street. You see, to the left of my house is a large extended family with a rabble of kids, and to the right of me is a share house with five to six people living in a house probably built with three. So a few weeks ago, the house to the left of me had a full bin and decided he needed a place to put his rubbish. To not raise suspicion, he walked straight past my house and dropped a bag of used diapers in my right neighbor's bin. But a master criminal he's not, and he was caught doing it. And what has begun from that incident is a war between my two neighbors, trying to throw increasingly gross loads of rubbish into the other's bin. I've decided I don't want a bar of it, but both neighbors have caught me over the fence or at the letterbox in the last couple of days and complained about the other to me, asking for help to beat the other one. Not being the wisest in these sort of situations, I went to my fiancé to try and figure out what to do. My suggestion was to hang a giant Swiss flag at the front to indicate our neutrality, as neutrality is always the best answer. After I'd laughed at my own joke, my fiancé then, without looking away from her knitting, simply said, yeah, neutrality works so well for the Iranians in World War II. She was right. Iran tried to stay neutral in World War II and was then subsequently invaded by Britain and the USSR. She pointed out that if I try to stay out of this, how long will it take before both neighbors figure out that my bin is frequently half empty due to the only two of us living here? And for the rest of time going forward, my bin will be filled with used diapers. You see, neutrality has its drawbacks. And one country contending with that exact statement at the moment is Oman. Oman sits over the narrow strait of Hormuz from Iran, whilst at the same time sharing a long border with Iran's mortal enemy, Saudi Arabia. Both countries have been courting Iran for years, and for years, Oman has done everything it can to remain neutral, happy to even act as a back channel between the two. But Oman has had this luxury because it's been relatively well off. Good times make easy decisions. But what happens when the forecasted price of oil drops, while the price of food and other staples unable to be grown in Oman rises? When water becomes insecure? When Oman is forced to implement taxes and cut back on the luxuries that many in the country have become accustomed to. If there is an uprising inside Oman, who will they call for support? Because whichever side they do will mean saddling Oman to their future. Whichever neighbor I choose to help means the other one will hate me forever. But one neighbor hating me might be better than both of them compromising and filling up my bins. Neutrality doesn't always guarantee safety. So what will Oman do going forward? How stable or unstable is the Omani system? And can Oman keep holding on to its title as the Switzerland of the Middle East? Well, to talk about that, we turn to our first guest. 
Part 1. The Swiss Solution. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Oman is an interesting country in the sense that when we, when we generally think of the Middle East, we think, of, well, you know, they're Muslim uh, and they're either Sunni or they're Shiite. And, and what distinguishes Oman is the fact that it belongs to the third sect of Islam, which is Ibadism. Uh, and that, that's had an important impact on its foreign policy and, and other factors. It's also uh, one of the few absolute monarchies left in the world with Sultan, uh, who, who exercises near absolute power. They do have a, a kind of a consultative assembly, but really the Sultan is the source of all political power. Um, and it, it's had a very interesting foreign policy and usually described as being neutral. I describe it more as pragmatic, um, but it, it really has kind of distinguished itself among Arab states is not always kind of towing uh, the line that you would expect of an Arab Muslim country. Calvin Allen was the former Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs and the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Shenandoah University. He was also the Executive Director for the Center for International Programs and Services and a Fulbright Scholar in Oman. Allen also wrote the widely acclaimed book, Oman Under Caboose, and he joins us today. Yeah, Oman was one of the kind of early imperial powers in the world in the late 18th, uh, early 19th century. It did uh, establish control over uh, large sections of East Africa, including Zanzibar and some of the smaller islands and places like Mombasa. But it also had some territories along the coast of Iran, a place called Chabar, uh, also uh, the port of Gwador, which was then in India, now part of Pakistan. Uh, these were largely driven by trade interests. Uh, Omani trade relations were very strong in East Africa, uh, ivory, slaves, uh, animal hides, uh, things of that matter. Uh, they, they held control of Zanzibar uh, up until late 1850s uh, when uh, the British got involved and um, the, the, the dynasty was essentially separated so that there was one sultan in Oman and another sultan, same family, uh, in Zanzibar. Oman is the easternmost edge of the Arabian Peninsula, geographically looking a little bit like a mirrored version of California. And although the country has managed to remain a bastion of stability, its neighbours can't really say the same. To the southwest of the country is Yemen, currently battling a brutal, complicated civil war. To the west is the regional conductor Saudi Arabia, and to the northwest is the United Arab Emirates, another former British protectorate. With the Emiratis having a similar geography and similar cultural roots, you would assume that the Emiratis and the Omanis would have a lot in common, but the two have greatly diverged on different paths. Why is that? I think in part uh, religion, again, as I mentioned in my opening comments, Oman largely Ibadi, the uh, Emirates largely uh, Sunni, 
Um, also, the Emirates fairly early on uh, in, the, in the 19th century, when, when Saudi Arabia was uh, expanding its influence, came to be much more <clears throat> closely allied with the, with, with the Saudis than they were uh, with the Omanis. And then I think a, another factor was, was simply the isolation that existed uh, with the Omani regime under uh, Saeed bin Taimur um, throughout um, the middle part of the, of the 20th century, when Oman really kind of only had contact uh, with the British and, and with India formally. So you kind of alluded to in your opening statement, but Oman has taken a role as a kind of Switzerland of the Middle East. Unlike many of the region's bitter rivalries, Oman has good relations with Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Turkey, the US, China, and many, many more. In fact, Oman is still regularly used as a back channel when some of these countries want to work with each other today. Why has Oman put all of its eggs into the neutrality basket? Two principles have guided their foreign policy. I think the first one is don't let your neighbors quarrels uh, cause problems for you. So we'll, we'll take Syria as an example. You know, the Arab Spring in 2011 started to cause problems, uh, led, to, led to the civil war in Syria and, and kind of the general isolation of Bashir al-Assad. Um, you know, Oman decided Look, uh, we're we're not going to get involved in this. We're not going to let the isolation of Syria have an impact on us. And so, basically, while condemning what was going on in Syria, Caboos uh, refused to break diplomatic relations with Assad. Uh, and then they also did not participate in the um, attacks on ISIL um, that that occurred in 2014. And again, I think that that kind of general idea is, you know, these these bilateral relations of our neighbors don't necessarily mean that we have to follow suit with one or the other, which will which will create difficulties for us. I think the other principle of Saudi foreign or of, of uh, Omani foreign policy has been really to try to balance the Saudis. Again, I'll take for example what's going on in Yemen. Uh, theoretically, Oman has remained neutral uh, in the Yemeni conflict. Um, why? Um, why would they support the Houthis? Well, I think the answer to that again goes back to the first principle. The Saudis and the Houthis are fighting each other. That's not our fight. So let's not take sides. But I think the second principle is the Saudis and the Houthis are fighting each other. Eh, you know, we're not necessarily going to uh, do something that's going to benefit the Saudis in all of this. And I think that same principle kind of governs relations with Iran. Um, again, the Saudis and Iran don't get along. There's a bilateral relationship there that the Omanis could very easily take sides on. But again, what benefit is there to taking sides uh, in, in, in that dispute? Uh, so, you know, we, we stay out of those fights. It's hard to have a conversation about Oman without talking about Sultan Qaboos bin Sayed. 
who was the Sultan of Oman from 1970 to 2020, 50 years. Even now when you travel to Muscat, the capital, there are still pictures of the Sultan throughout the city in shops, and he's still widely remembered positively throughout the country. How influential was Kambus on the direction Oman is heading right now? I think it's very easy, on the one hand, to overstate Caboose's influence, and I think on the other hand, it's very easy to understate it. Look, there's no question that he was the architect of modern Oman. Um, and, you know, Oman had no foreign policy before Caboose came in. Uh, his father, Saeed bin Taimur, was completely isolated. He was completely isolated, not from the world, but uh, really all from most of Oman. He hid himself down in Salalah throughout most of his reign. So when Caboose came to power, there really was just kind of a blank slate. And so began aggressively reaching out to establish relations with the wider Arab world, uh, certainly with Iran, uh, and then also uh, to continue. I mean, the one country that Oman had relations with was Great Britain, uh, and then also to open up relations with the United States. Now, in the early years, all of that tended to be focused on the civil war that was going on in Dhofar, which was which was really the greatest threat that existed to the country. Uh, so the first five years were really devoted almost entirely to ending that conflict. Um, but even after that, uh, Caboose steered the ship. Uh, he he was the decision maker. Now, that's not to say that he didn't have a fair number of people around him giving advice and, and guiding uh, some of these paths. Some of these were Omanis, uh, some of those were uh, other uh, Arabs, uh, and of course there were, there were British and American influences putting input as well. But, but Caboose made the decisions. And so domestic policy, foreign policy, absolutely no doubt uh, that, that Caboose was in charge. And what about his successor, the new Sultan Haitham bin Tariq, Caboose's former foreign minister? How does he compare to Caboose? Haitham, Haitham's an interesting character in all of this because, of course, his early career was spent at the foreign ministry. He was uh, first director of uh, the U.S. office in the ministry and then became the undersecretary of foreign affairs uh, under Alawi. I think that Haitham probably will certainly remain in charge, um, but the ministry will, will play a much greater role in helping to formulate uh, foreign policy. You know, there were problems for Caboose, especially in the later years, and Oman did have its, its Arab Spring, and, and there were protests against not so much Sultan, but against the economic conditions, and that's the most serious problem that, that Haitham will face. Uh, the Omani economy is not particularly strong, still entirely dependent on oil revenues, but it's also a growing population, a young population. Will he be able to manage that? It's, it's an interesting question. So far, he seems to have done a very effective job of doing so. Um, he certainly doesn't have the popularity, the prestige that Caboose has. And um, yeah, I think that that'll be a challenge. Oman is a 300-kilometer-long desert border with Yemen, a country currently rife with Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and many other groups. How has Oman managed to actually keep these terrorist groups 
from crossing the border and causing problems inside Oman. Because the Omanis have always seen, well, not always, but since 1970, Oman, well, probably since 1965, actually the beginning of the Dofar War, Oman has always seen its greatest security threat coming from Yemen, not from Iran, not from the Saudis. It's been Yemen. The focus has been on Yemen. So I think one of the most interesting developments in the, during the Oman, the Yemeni civil war, this most recent civil war, has been, again, very low level, uh, off the radar screen role that Oman has played in Yemen, and in particular uh, in the, the kind of Hadramaut, the, the border area between Dofar and Yemen, which is the people that live there are ethnically called Mahra. Uh, and and the, they cross over the, the border between Oman and, and Yemen. And Oman has been very, very active in that region in order to secure their border. Uh, and <clears throat> I think that this has been one of the main reasons for the for the Omani position in in Yemen. They want to protect their their southern border. Uh, and so they've 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 been playing a much more active role than than you certainly would pick up in the uh, in the popular press in that in that civil war. A good chunk of the analysis done in this region constantly compares Oman and the United Arab Emirates, but having visited both of these countries, they are so completely different from each other on first impression. When you leave the airport in Dubai, you see a bouquet of huge skyscrapers and a city made completely of sterile steel and glass. But when you arrive in Muscat, the city still has a lot of ancient aesthetics, and the architecture of most of the buildings is the white clay look you'd see in old historical footage. Why is there this divergence between the two neighbors? And are these divergences just about aesthetics, or does the separation run a lot deeper than this? Well, don't don't let the appearances fool you. Um, this was <laughs> this was one of um, you know one of Caboose's uh, idiosyncrasies, let's say. One of the the, the 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 themes of that is that yes, there is this very strong tie to the past, um, and so kind of Caboose's view was we are a modern country, we are looking to the future, but not at the expense of our heritage. We don't want to be Dubai. And so uh, there was a conscious effort for, you know, restrictions on the kind of things that could be built. They had to maintain Omani tradition. Uh, they had to be certain colors. Um, you know, there are all these rules and regulations about development that, that I think served Oman well. I agree with you. You know, Dubai, Dubai could be anywhere in the world. You know, when, when Dubai suddenly realized, oh, geez, uh, cultural heritage is important for tourism. You know, they had to go to Basra to try and find out what Dubai might have looked like in the past and then, you know, do themselves a Disney World development along the along the creek there. Um, you know, Oman didn't have to do that. Oman maintained its ties to its past, especially in terms of architecture in particular. Uh, and so, you know, I don't think that that indicates any kind of 
general looking at the past and ignoring the future. I, I think, it, again, it was just one of the things that Caboose wanted to accomplish in development, uh, maintain that cultural tradition while still looking looking to the future. I mean, all of those buildings are air conditioned. Uh, all of those buildings have modern amenities. Um, they may look a little old fashioned, but uh, it, it's, it, it's a modern country. Well, it seems that Hytham is trying to stick with this aesthetic look set down by Caboose, but what about the neutrality? Can Oman actually hold on to this policy of neutrality forever going forward? I don't know what neutral means anymore in world affairs. It's an interesting question. Um, so let me switch it and and say, do I think the the, the kind of policy of pragmatism can go on forever. It, look, it's served Oman well uh, for the last, what, 50 years. I mean, I, I just don't know what neutrality means, but the pragmatism, yes, I think the policy in Yemen is serving them, them quite well. I, frankly, I don't know what the alternative for a country like Oman is. I, I, I don't, I mean, I guess in terms of neutrality, it's it really focuses on Saudis as opposed to Iran. Um, so I, I think I think the, the, the pragmatic policy holds. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. A lot of analysts in the geopolitical world tend to focus on politics first and forget about how much of a part economics plays, particularly in oil-producing countries. You know, I think it's something that we need to understand because it has huge geopolitical implications. To oversimplify, there are a huge number of countries around the world that have oil reserves, but the economics of it prevents them from their domestic oil industries becoming viable. Let's take Australia here as a bit of an example. For us to produce a barrel of oil, it would likely mean drilling offshore, which is very expensive. And the oil is not as pure, which means more refining, which makes it more expensive. And depending on who you ask, a barrel of oil could cost somewhere between 100 to 200 US dollars each to create. So if the oil price is around $75 a barrel, that means we could potentially be losing 25 to 125 US dollars per barrel, which is why Australia tends to buy most of its oil from overseas. When you compare that to Saudi Arabia or Russia or Oman, where most of the oil comes from onshore and you can just dig it out of the ground in a pretty pure form, it really makes the difference. Depending on the field in Saudi Arabia, an oil barrel can cost just $8 to produce, and Oman around 18 rather than the 200 to make it in Australia. So with the price of oil being set by the market, the market becomes a kind of moving ceiling. So to use a bit of an analogy here, if we look at the price of oil as a kind of moving ceiling, which goes up and down depending on the price of oil, at $100 a barrel, the ceiling goes right up and countries like the UK and Guyana actually have pretty viable oil industries as their cost of production is lower than the price of oil. But as the ceiling comes down, and the price of oil drops, 
It forces countries to either hunch over and lower their price of oil even if it's below their production cost, or simply leave the market. At the moment, the ceiling price is quite high, as the price of oil is very high. But what happens when it starts to come back down? Dropping down and down, first knocking out the expensive players like your UK and Israel, then coming further down and knocking out your medium players like Algeria, Nigeria and Kazakhstan. All countries very reliant on their oil industries for revenues. And it can go pretty far down. In 2020, the price of oil went to zero, then hung around the $14 a barrel mark for a while, meaning that only the cheapest of the cheap countries were actually making a profit of each barrel of oil. Many of these countries were lucky to get out of that situation fairly quickly as the world began to open back up. But in the future, what happens if it stays low for a few months, or even a year, or even longer? How many countries or companies would simply stop producing altogether? We're to talk about that, and Oman's place in that story. We turn to our second guest. Part 2. Every 30 Years There are two ways to start thinking about Oman from an economic perspective. And the first is, is its past, and the second is really the present, because no one really knows where the future is headed at this point. So the, the first way to think about it is that, like a lot of other Gulf states, Oman is highly dependent on oil and gas exports. Its government has been heavily indebted since the, the oil price crash of 2014, uh, and during the pandemic, it's... In, in 2020, its total debt grew from around 60% of GDP to over 80%, and its its credit rating was downgraded twice, which is very difficult for for a country like that uh, that's that's already got a weaker fiscal position, um, and and also like many other Gulf states, it it struggles with some uncomfortable levels of of youth unemployment. The second way to think about Oman's economy is that in in the last couple of years, it's actually been subject to some very critical and long overdue reforms. Uh, since Sultan Haitham came to power in, in 2020 and prioritized an improvement in uh, Oman's fiscal position along with, with other economic reforms. And, and that's been really boosted by uh, high oil prices because uh, Muscat is prioritizing debt reduction with the remainder of it, these, these sort of bumper revenues allocated to development projects. Um, and, and both the IMF and, and S&P have upgraded their outlook on Oman since 2020. Um, so just a, a couple of headline numbers behind what I just said. Uh, in 2021, oil and gas exports, uh, as a total percent of its, its exports by value, stood at around 66%. Uh, and in terms of government revenue, uh, oil and gas revenue represented 71% of that total in 2021. So both the government and the overall economy um, are, are really highly, highly dependent on, on that kind of revenue. Colby Connolly is a research analyst at Energy Intelligence, with key focuses on the energy transition, corporate strategy, and competitor intelligence in the oil and gas markets. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute and an expert on future analysis in the Middle East energy markets. He joins us today. There's a lot of, of, of competition and difference of opinion among the Gulf states, and, and Oman is really a perfect example for that because... Uh, it, it really tries to maintain this degree of, of neutrality in the region. Uh, they, they do not like getting pushed towards, towards regional disputes, and they, they actively try to uh, not so much mediate, but, but act as sort of facilitators for, for diplomacy um, on a regional basis. There are, there are some instances of them actually mediating. Um, but they, they really try and stay out of this degree of 
competition or or you know whatever it may be on a, you know on a political front you had the split for around four years between Saudi Bahrain and the UAE and then and then um, Qatar over there that was mostly a foreign policy issue um, and and increasingly something that's still happening is you have this strong degree of economic competition between uh, Saudi Arabia and and the United Arab Emirates and and there there are small ways that Oman factors into that. Um, it's something that they've tried to stay out of for as long as possible, but given their, their economic situation, there are a lot of questions about how long they're, they're effectively going to be able to maintain that stance. Um, and, and, you know, the question here that I alluded to earlier is, is if there is, you know, the, some major investment from neighboring states that, um, that materialize in, in Oman's energy sector or elsewhere, you know, what does that do to um to leverage over muscat in in, in riyadh's favor um you know certainly there's there's some potential there and and from the saudi angle you know its efforts to compete with the uae on an economic basis um certainly certainly expand uh if if they have a great deal of investment in oman because it you know i mean it certainly shares a long border with the uae um, but it's it's hard to tell right now how far muscat is willing to go uh, in that regard, because its its ability to stay out of those regional disputes is something that it's definitely going to want to pre preserve in the long term. Um, so, so balancing you know that kind of of regional investment from neighbors um, with with that that level of independence that it really values uh, is is definitely one of its its greatest long term challenges. We're going to go into foreign policy a lot more in part three. In short, the foreign policies between Oman and the UAE and Saudi Arabia are very different. And as different as they are in foreign policy, how similar are they in energy policy? How does the energy policy in Muscat compare to the energy policy in uh, Abu Dhabi or Riyadh? Uh, well, Oman is is not an OPEC member. It is a part of OPEC Plus uh, and, and has been for, for some time now. Um, that's something that, you know, Oman isn't, necessarily too assertive with um it it you know their their production capacity is is lower um than than some of the, the more influential gulf states in in opec you know saudi arabia uae kuwait um you know their their crude and condensate output is, is a little over a million barrels a day compare that with um, you know, the UAE claims that, that their, their capacity is around 4.2 now, uh, Saudi is, is pushing up to, to 13 million by 13 million barrels a day by 2027. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of how much their production capacity actually gives them leverage, there, there really isn't much. What they are doing, uh, that, that is, um, uh, particularly, particularly interesting in terms of, of the Gulf energy sector. Uh, is that they're, they've started this effort to really build a large-scale clean hydrogen economy by 2040. Uh, it's not the only region in the country that's announcing a, a long list of, of hydrogen projects or agreements. Um, you know, the, the UAE is certainly doing this, uh, but what, what's particularly interesting is that Oman looks much more focused on developing hydrogen for local consumption than a lot of other countries with these kinds of projects. Um, because, you know, what you have in, in the UAE, um, other places are, are typically aimed at exports. Um, and, and Oman will likely want to become a hydrogen exporter as well. 
but it also wants to use hydrogen to decarbonize products uh, that it sells to European markets, which, um, you know, the, some of that can be what you think of as, as the hard to decarbonize sectors like, uh, for example, oil refining, um, but also other other industries like steel and aluminum production, uh, which are which are fairly, fairly substantial in the Gulf. Um, and, and when things like, you know, carbon border taxes in Europe come into play, um, you know, other other major economies becoming more carbon conscious. This is something that it wants to use to to remain competitive. Um, and so the, the country's got high potential for um, developing both uh, what 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 you refer to in the industry as green and blue hydrogen. Blue is uh, hydrogen that's produced with with natural gas and carbon capture, uh, where, whereas green is it uses an electrolyzer and and sources its its power from renewable energy um, but th this is something that's really important for the for the Omani economy um, you know there there is a p strong potential to to create new ties with this as well as as um, partnerships with some of the larger international oil companies that have been present there for years and that they they'd like to to keep in the country um, and, and also like a lot of other uh, Gulf countries, they already, they already have ammonia production capacity. And so blue hydrogen is, is uh, a, a relatively more simple process. Um, and, and they've got operators in there like Occidental Petroleum from, from the United States, with, States which has uh, fairly, fairly extensive experience handling um, CO2 and, and using it for enhanced oil recovery. So they, they could end up being some valuable partners for, for Oman in this regard. And, you know, they they certainly will be competing with each other in the region um, in in this this hydrogen market much more so than they are in in, in oil markets now. Um, there there are certainly a, a range of strategies that have been rolled out, but uh, Oman's is is very interesting in the sense that it's it's not necessarily just looking to set up a couple of of export projects. Um, they they really want to scale up the the use of clean hydrogen, um, you know, both for for exports and and in the country. And and there's risk attached to that. It's you know it's it's not totally clear where the major demand centers are for for hydrogen use are going to be. Um, it it's it's not you know clear what kind of a timeline they have. Although there are, there are a range of estimates out there. Um, but Oman, you know, I, I talked about its its fiscal position earlier, and it it doesn't have uh, as a country, quite as much time as, as some of these other major producers do. Um, you know, it, it, they've, they, they were really on the rocks uh, when the pandemic hit. Um, and, and they had a previous leader who was, you know, he was highly celebrated for, for laying the foundations of, of the modern Omani state. But at the same time, there were, there were, you know, he was very much a member of the old guard. Um, he, he held a couple of key positions for himself, a couple of key cabinet positions. Um, and, and what Hytham has been doing is really trying to, to push through a lot of those, those reforms that were overdue. So th there is a reason that they're moving so quickly and, and betting so heavily on this. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the pandemic really shocked a lot of, uh, a lot of these countries in this regard. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but Oman was already in a difficult spot. And, and on the horizon as well, you've got a, a massive LNG expansion in, in, in Qatar that's coming up. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be completed around 2027, uh, as well as, as the UAE now looking like it's, it's probably going to about double its LNG 
export capacity. Uh, and, and where it currently stands, it's smaller than Oman's, but uh, they'll likely be competing for a lot of the same markets, um, you know, South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, places like that. Um, so there, there, there's really a strong impetus to diversify for Oman more so than most. Um, there really isn't another comparable case in the Gulf. You know, Bahrain's fiscal position is not great, um, but they rely much more heavily on support from Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, Bahrain has a lot less policy autonomy, um, you know, be, because of that dependence. And, and that's certainly not a position that, that Oman wants to wind up in. So with the oil price being so high at the moment, how do you think Muscat will take advantage of this moment in the sun? And do you think they'll use it to build up future industries and diversify their economy? Yeah, the country's 2022 budget had been set uh, based on, uh, it, you know, it, it expected revenues based on uh, oil being about $50 a barrel. Uh, so, you know, with, with oil running at more than, than double that for a lot of the years so far, uh, the four and a half billion dollar deficit they, they had projected will probably end up uh, flipping to a surplus. Um, so you, you may see potential for reinvestment in in Oman's oil sector this year. Um, you know, and 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 that'll go into some of the other some of the other new energy um, areas that I, I mentioned earlier, like renewables and and clean hydrogen. Uh, but but also some potential for for reinvestment in the oil sector and um, you know in, in in more traditional oil and gas production and you know that that that's an area where I can bring in some of the of our, of our own analysis. Um, so one of the things I work on at at Energy Intelligence is a, a biannual update of external break-even oil prices for a range of countries in OPEC plus and and that's essentially the price per barrel. A country needs for its current account to balance, um, or to put it another way, it's it's what's necessary for a country to be able to finance its imports. Uh, this is a little different from fiscal break-even prices, which is a term that you hear a lot of Gulf analysts talk about, uh, in the sense that we're discussing something that's more closely tied to the country's trade balance with external break-evens than uh, whatever number its government has selected as its as its annual budget, and that's. That's where a fiscal break even comes from. Uh, so this is a way of looking at the economic health of an oil exporting country uh, instead of focusing solely on the government's fiscal position. Uh, and, and what we estimated last month was that uh, of the, the 15 OPEC plus countries we look at in the forecast, uh, the average external break even price was uh, just, just a little over uh, $85 per barrel. Uh, whereas Oman's external break-even is uh, significantly above that range. It's, it's just under $94 per barrel. Uh, and our forecast period runs through 2026. And as that goes on, uh, Oman comes closer to the average price as time goes by, but it probably won't reach the group average until near the end of the decade. Um, I caveat that by saying that, uh, you know, that, that kind of a metric can change quickly in, in times that are as volatile as these. Um, you know, as, as an example, Russia used to have one of the lowest break-evens in, in the set. It had a, a, more, uh, a more diversified economy, uh, and it's, it's still below average, but the, the price climbed by over $30 a barrel from where we had them last year, which is, is certainly not the type of, of movement that we'd normally see. So, okay, so why does this matter to Oman? Um, you know, if, it, if it's able to raise production and reduce uh, dependence on certain imported goods, uh, that would be the easiest way for it to change the situation. Um, so while it is trying to reduce dependence on those oil and gas exports, the reality is that they're going to be needed for some time. 
uh, in order to fund its diversification efforts, in order to fund the government's budget, uh, and, and the need to maintain its production levels, which requires continued investment in, in the sector, um, is, is not necessarily going to go away anytime soon. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of Gulf states are, are bigger food importers. So, you know, you hear about, about uh, agricultural commodities skyrocketing, uh, you know, as, as a result of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Um, some of the Gulf, ex Gulf countries are a little better uh, positioned to, to weather that storm than, than other countries in the region. Um, but it still does mitigate the impact of having much higher oil prices because imports have suddenly gotten more expensive. Uh, so it, it does have an effect of offsetting some of some of those bumper revenues, um, but you know what what Oman is prioritizing now with with this this higher revenue um, is is really its debt reduction, and that's that's one of its biggest long term problems. It's certainly not the only one. Uh, youth unemployment is another one. Um, you know, as as well as the need to sort of diversify the government's revenue. Um, so that so that those, it's not vulnerable to to falling into that that heavy level of debt uh, again in the future. Just a few years ago, we saw Saudi Arabia take its state-owned oil company Saudi Aramco public, hoping to raise two trillion dollars to fund the future development of the Saudi state. But with Saudi Arabia not getting as much as they would have hoped for in the original public offering, do you think Oman will go down the same road as that? I think what you would see is something that is much more similar to the Emirati model in that regard. Um, it's a little more subtle. It, it, it you know, doesn't typically attract the same degree of, of international attention uh, as, as the Aramco IPO did. Um, you know, but as, as you pointed out, you know, it, it, the Aramco IPO did not get very close to, to where they, they had hoped it would. Um, contrast that with with the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company or, or Adnoc, who has they've they've basically done partial IPOs of of individual business units. Um, so, for example, they they've done it with their drilling unit. Um, they did it with a, a fertilizer joint venture, um, and, and and that's been a lot more successful. It's it's raised a lot of money for the company. Um, so, partial privatization of state-owned companies is something that that I expect to see. Uh, and, and it's something that, that, that the Omanis have said they plan to do. They, they said they plan to list something like 35 state-owned companies by 2025. Um, and, and, and there's been almost a, a bonanza of, of IPOs, uh, both in Saudi Arabia and the UAE this year. So that's, that's certainly not something that um, Oman will, will, will want to miss out on. And, and OQ is one of the companies that, that, that may do that. One of the most interesting stories here is regarding tax. Because with revenues down, Oman was talking about bringing in income tax to the country for the first time. People have been pretty happy with the current system, but will they be as happy when they have to start paying tax as well? Is there a risk of instability if the government does implement this policy down the road? This is something that they've discussed. They discussed it last year and it was, it was supposed to be uh, sort of unveiled in 2022. Uh, we'll have to see if uh, you know high oil prices this year maybe enable them to reconsider that because there there are a lot of overdue reforms that that Oman is putting into place. But um, an income tax, which which was specifically meant to be for high higher earners, um, that's really uncharted territory in terms of of uh, Gulf domestic policy. Uh, they did introduce uh, a value added tax VAT. Um, in April 2021 at 5%, um, which is, 
later than about half the region, but uh, Qatar and Kuwait still haven't done it. Um, and, and while 5% is low by, by international standards, it's, it's not likely that they're going to increase it as drastically as Saudi Arabia did when they, they raised it from 5% to 15% during the early stages of the pandemic. Uh, and, and they've also had a lot of carve outs, uh, a lot of exemptions or, or zero rated items aimed at sort of mitigating the impact on, on the poorest Omanis. Um, but the, the really notable thing is that potential income tax for high earners. Um, the, this is arguably one of the trickiest policy moves that a Gulf country can attempt to make. And the simple reason for that is that the Gulf states operate on, on a social contract that, that often gets referred to as the rentier state. And one interpretation of that model is that uh, citizens sort of forgo demands for, for political representation or, or greater transparency in favor of um, cradle to the grave, social benefits, no income tax, uh, all paid for by, by oil and gas exports. Um, and, and that was something that for a time resulted in a drastically improved quality of life for, for citizens in many Gulf countries. I mean, this is, you know, a lot of this progress has been made in, in the last few decades, but as the time has gone by, um, the sustainability of this model is, has been called into question at, at a much greater frequency. Um, with the introduction of an income tax, Amman would potentially be opening the door uh, for its citizens to really increase calls for greater political representation. Uh, and, and that would likely come in the form of, of greater power for, for what's called the Shura Council. That's the lower house of, of the country's legislative body, uh, which is called the Council of Amman. Uh, and, and now I'm getting incredibly speculative, but what, what does that look like, not only for Oman, but for the rest of the Gulf region? I mean, how, how would its neighbors react to that? Um, is it something that they would, you know, actively work against in a sense? Um, you know, what exactly that form of political representation would look like is, is, is murkier and, and how exactly it would come about um, is also a question. Um, and, you know, th that's something that's been discussed at, at protests that have, that have taken place in Oman, which are not very frequent. Um, there were, you know, youth, youth unemployment is, is really what, what the, the focus of the demonstrations are. Uh, and, and this happened in, in several major cities, you know, sort of halfway through last year. They had echoes of similar demonstrations that were were held 10 years ago during sort of the wave of, of protest movements that swept the region. Um, protests in Oman typically don't get that far out of hand. So for the moment, this is not, you know, the thing that I, I would expect to sort of threaten the country with, with some kind of, you know, mass instability or, 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 or civil disobedience, the, the, the sort of thing you know, for the moment seems really out of character for, for Oman in general, but uh, it, it is something that, that will constitute an increasing source of pressure on the government until it can deliver results. Uh, and so the question is, if, if things like an income tax are, are introduced before th this part of, of the population feels like it's, it's been looked after, um, what, what does that do to their viewpoint? Does, does, that, does that galvanize their views? Does that... Um, you know, that, that's, that's really something that takes us down a very uncertain path when it, when it comes to calls for, for greater political freedom. And, you know, I, I think certainly introducing the tax on, on higher earners to begin with is, is probably intended to avoid that. 
Um, it's it's probably something that if they if they go through with, they'd like to see uh, they'd like to see how it works, and and certainly a lot of their neighbors will too. Um, but you know, if if it is going to be something that that threatens uh, political stability or, or or just sort of that social cohesion, um, then I think you might see them look at other other policy options, uh, as as well as it being something that uh, you know would would to the degree that it would ha have the potential to harm foreign investment. I think they would would certainly have to reconsider it from that perspective as well, because that that foreign investment is is going to be vital to carrying the the Omani economy through and in, into its next uh, into its next stage. Well, with that in mind. What do you see in the future for Oman? Yeah, that's 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 a tough question. Uh, you know, the I'll, I'll say that the the momentum towards reform is certainly there, um, and 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 it's there in a bigger way, I think, than it is in a lot of a lot of the rest of the region. Um, but there's still plenty of things that can go wrong. I mean, I've I've talked about you know sort of sung the praises of the reform efforts and and the great things that. The, the windfall oil revenue are going to do for Oman this year. But, you know, the, the, the first and most obvious thing is is that a few of, of these sort of mega projects that the country has could fail. Um, and in the Gulf, these things fail or just stagnate all the time. Uh, and, and the major project I'm thinking about in this case is Dukum, which is a, a city on Oman's southern coast that I, I mentioned earlier. It was it was relatively unknown before the government um, decided to, to build a major port and an industrial zone there. Um, and, and, you know, this is a way that, that a lot of countries attract foreign investment in the region. Um, the UAE is, is certainly the most notable example with, with Jebel Ali in, in Dubai. Um, but the, the problem that they can create also is, is just that they, they provide a great deal of incentives for, for foreign investment, but, um, you know, a, a lot of this tends to be dependent on things like certain tax breaks. Um, more lax employment regulations. So in terms of trying to get uh, Omani nationals employed by the private sector, uh, you know, some of these these mega projects or, or special economic zones uh, kind of have a limited impact in, in that regard. Um, and, and I'd say that that, you know, that unemployment, that youth unemployment uh, point is is really the area where Oman has the most work to do, uh, and and I, I I would argue that solving that problem is 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 should something should be something that's on top of the list. But you know, in, in terms of you know all these these other projects, you know, new industrial zones, um, you know, hydrogen initiatives, things like that, um, all of these are are you know, certainly hold some good prospects for for economic diversification. Um, but you know what what they do in terms of of putting Omanis, especially young Omanis, to work and and to work in the private sector, um, th that's that's another question, and it's it's got to be a component really uh, of of most of the things they do. I'd, I'd expect to see that pop up quite a lot um, because it it'll you know it, it it's it's something that I mentioned can can really take them into uncharted territory down the road. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. 
Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. It's fair to say that the Middle East is becoming even more polarized as Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, Turkey, Israel, and Iran all fight for influence in the region. So far, neutrality has kept Oman out of trouble, but can that strategy last forever? Or do they risk being left behind and thrown aside? Well, to take us through that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Peer Pressure Oman stands at the nexus of really four different civilizations. One, of course, is the Arab world. Uh, Oman is an Arab country. They speak Arabic. Uh, Second, though, is South Asia. Uh, Oman sits on the uh, Arabian Sea and looks across it to India and Pakistan. And much of its commerce and trade has always been with India and Pakistan. Uh, It also sits athwart Uh, the Gulf of Oman from the nations of East Africa. And it has a long history of relations with East Africa, especially with Zanzibar. And last but not least, it is directly due south of Iran and has a long association with Persian culture and the Persian um, history. So Oman is really a quite interesting country in that it has Uh, intimate relations with four different civilizations around it. Bruce Rydell is a senior fellow and the director of the Brookings Intelligence Project. Bruce is also the senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy and spent 30 years at the Central Intelligence Agency as a senior advisor on South Asia and the Middle East to four presidents of the United States in the staff of the National Security Council at the White House. He was also Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Near East and South Asia at the Pentagon and a senior advisor to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in Brussels. I think um, a lot of that is the effect of the shock of us. Uh, a remarkable individual uh, who came to power in 1970 uh, and hang on for uh, almost a half century afterwards. In his early days, uh, he could be a little bit uh, reckless, but in time he became a very thoughtful Uh, and prudent and risk-averse leader. He tried to avoid falling into the uh, rivalries that have dominated the region, uh, particularly the rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, He stayed out, for the most part, from Yemen's interminable civil wars. Um, And while he's been a close ally of the United States, uh, he's avoided uh, getting involved in America's wars, most notably the Iraq War in 2003. With the war raging just over the border in Yemen, how has Oman managed to avoid terrorism seeping into its own country? Well, there is undoubtedly spillover. There's no question of that. Um, Oman's most westward province, Dofar, uh, borders on Yemen's most eastward province, El Mahra. Uh, and there has been spillover there. But when the Saudis made the decision to start the war uh, seven years ago, uh, Sultan Qaboos was the only Gulf Arab leader who opted not to go in with them. Uh, I think he recognized right from the beginning 
that the Saudis had no real strategy for winning the war, no achievable endgame in sight, and this was going to turn into an expensive uh, quagmire, which is exactly what it has done. So he wisely kept Oman out of the conflict. Uh, that came at some cost in terms of Saudi-Omani relations, but it was a manageable cost. Uh, and now he finds himself in the position, or Oman finds itself in the position, of possibly being the um, third party that can negotiate uh, a compromise solution uh, to end this terrible uh, conflict, which has created the worst humanitarian catastrophe of our time, um, which may soon be overtaken by Ukraine, but at least up until a month ago, was by far the worst humanitarian catastrophe of our time. How much pressure was Saudi Arabia putting on Oman to get involved in this conflict in the early days? Oman has in the fairly luxurious position that it produces enough oil uh, to take care of its own energy demands. It has a modest export amount. Um, so it's relatively immune to economic pressure from its neighbors. And because it has trading patterns with Iran, with uh, India, with Pakistan, with East Africa, uh, it has alternative economic sources uh, to simply dealing with the Gulf. Um, I'm sure there was uh, pressure, particularly political pressure, but in the end it was manageable uh, and Sultan Qaboos and Oman have pulled it off. And I believe the new Sultan uh, is gonna stick with this policy. It's now apparent to everyone uh, that the war in Yemen was a tragic, terrible mistake by the Saudis. In the last decade or so, the UAE has been desperate to capitalize on its moment in the sun sending troops into Yemen and supporting conflicts and deploying PMCs through numerous African countries, hoping to cement itself as a regional power while it has the chance. Oman's in a very similar resource predicament, so why haven't they gone down that same route? I think Oman is very much content uh, with its borders, uh, with its economy. Of course, it would like a, a more robust economy, but what it has works for the majority of the Omani people. It is uh, not looking for uh, foreign colonies, if you like, uh, as the UAE has sought to go after. Of course, they don't call them colonies, uh, but in effect colonies. While Saudi Arabia used military to try and bend Yemen, they used economics to try and break Qatar. Do you think that Saudi Arabia would ever try and use economic warfare against Oman to get it to fall into line with Riyadh's foreign policy goals? Saudi Arabia and Oman have never had particularly close relations, but they've never had hostile relations, not at least in the last 50 years or so. Um, the Saudis want Oman to be part of the Gulf Arab community, uh, and they're willing to see the Omanis go their own way as long as they continue to be a member of the Gulf Cooperation Council and adhere to the Gulf Cooperation Council's uh, various rules on internal security. Um, the uh, Saudis got angry at Qatar, uh, largely because Qatar was the home of the Al Jazeera uh, newspaper, radio, television network that uh, spoke very candidly, freely um, 
uh, about the weaknesses and uh, frivolities of the Gulf states, always excluding, of course, Qatar itself. Um, this angered the Saudis and the Emiratis tremendously. Oman is much more cautious. Uh, it doesn't host a major uh, television station. Uh, its press is uh, relatively free by Middle East standards, but is very careful not to criticize uh, the neighbors or um, to uh, focus on the machinations of, say, the Saudi royal family or the Emiratis royal families. Um, it's a cautious uh, country, uh, and I think the Saudis are willing to tolerate some differences of opinion as long as, in general, uh, Oman stays within the overall framework of uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council. The new Sultan of Oman, Haitham bin Tariq, has been doing a lot of work to reconnect Oman with the Indians and form a much closer tie between Muscat and New Delhi. Why is there so much focus on India as a trade partner here? Oman looks out to the sea and across the sea it sees India. And there is a very large Indian expatriate population in Oman. Um, if you go into the souk in Muscat, uh, I'd say at least a third of the shops are run by South Asians, mostly Indians, but also Pakistanis. Uh, there's brisk trade between the uh, Omanis uh, and India. And Oman knows that India is, uh, just because of its size uh, and population, going to be a major player in the Indian Ocean region for the foreseeable future. Uh, and it wants to align itself as much as possible uh, with that India, while out at the same time uh, damaging relations with Pakistan. Oman has a long history of uh, very close relations with the uh, westernmost province of Pakistan, Baluchistan. Um, there was a time in which Baluchistan was more or less uh, run by Oman. Uh, that changed as the British took over the South Asian subcontinent uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. But there's residual um, strong influence and connections between Baluchistan and Oman. So Oman has a great interest. In, in, in many ways, Oman looks more to the east than it does to the west. So for context here, Baluchistan is an area in the southeast of Iran and the southwest of Pakistan, where the ethnic Baluch people live. With Oman having such close ethnic ties with the Baluch people, if they were to go for their own independence or revolution, do you think Oman would move to back them? Uh, I don't think that Oman wants to see uh, Pakistan in particular fall into pieces. Uh, that would be highly destabilizing for the whole region. Pakistan, after all, is a nuclear weapons power. It has uh, quite a large military. Um, it has deep, very deep uh, political troubles at home. Um, the uh, civil military relationship in Pakistan uh, has never been very healthy. Uh, the military has uh, overthrown civilian governments many times. A blue insurgency could lead to a repetition of that. I think the Omani's advice uh, to Pakistani leaders is try to find enough autonomy for Baluchistan to keep the Baluchs content um, 
and do everything you can to develop the economy of Baluchistan uh, to dis- get them focused on economic economic issues rather than on uh, political issues. Well, what about the other big power in Asia? What is the relationship like between Oman and Beijing? Like the rest of the Gulf states, uh, Oman has opened up more and more to Chinese uh, activity. Uh, China is, after all, uh, the number one um, uh, importer of oil. Um, And while Oman doesn't have that much oil to export, what it does, some of it will undoubtedly go to China. The Omanis recognize that uh, the growth of the Chinese economy is another market that they might be interested in. Um, But they are also uh, very jealous about protecting their independence. I don't see Oman agreeing to a security agreement, for example, uh, with China anytime in the foreseeable future. Um, Even the security agreement they have with the United States, uh, which goes back a long, long way, uh, has resulted in only a very modest deployment of American military forces on the ground. We don't have a large base in Oman like we do, for example, in Kuwait or Bahrain or, or Qatar or the Emirates. Um, our presence there has always been much more um, light-footed. The majority of the U.S.'s air bases are in places like Turkey and Qatar, so why not, with Oman being so stable, the U.S. concentrate more of its air bases and defense forces inside Oman, right there at the Strait of Hormuz? I think a lot of it has to do with geography. Um, uh, armies tend to fight the last war over again. Uh, and if you look at America's force deployment in the Persian Gulf region, um, it's really fighting the Iraq wars over and over again. Uh, We have our largest ground presence uh, in Kuwait. Uh, We have a large air presence, uh, as you mentioned, in Qatar, which is close enough to Kuwait to carry out operations there, but far enough away that your air bases are relatively safe um, from attack. Uh, Oman is just, in many ways, too far away uh, from the Iraq theater of operations. The more likely... Uh, or, or more serious threat uh, to U.S. interests is, of course, Iran. And even there, Oman uh, is within striking range of parts of Western Iran, uh, but it's quite a distance uh, to go all the way to uh, Tehran. Do you think there ever will be something that will force Oman to pick a sign in this one? They will do everything they can to remain neutral. They are not interested in conflict with Iran. Um, Sultan Qaboos, for example, uh, was quite eager to comply with the request from uh, President Clinton uh, to send messages uh, on America's behalf uh, to the Omanis. He sent his foreign minister to Tehran to personally convey those messages. Uh, This was in the particularly tense atmosphere after the Kobar Towers uh, were attacked in Saudi Arabia in uh, 1995. The Sultan uh, played that role uh, quite uh, eagerly because he does not want to see a war between either Saudi Arabia and Iran, or even worse, between the United States and Iran. Uh, 
Uh, he knows that would be devastating for the region, uh, and his successor knows it would be devastating for the region. Um, the Omanis may be the one Gulf state uh, that genuinely agrees that the smart thing to do is to revive the uh, Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, um, because they want to see uh, a, a Gulf that de-escalates tensions. And of course, like us, they would prefer Iran not to have nuclear weapons. As the war in Yemen continues to drag on, what do you think Oman's policy will be towards the country? And do you think they can continue to just stay as far away from it as possible? I think Oman will do everything it can to minimize its involvement in the Yemen conflict. Um, the Houthis thrive uh, in North Yemen because that's the home of the Zaidi Shia group uh, to which they belong. There are no Zaidi Shias uh, in southeastern uh, Yemen, in the area of Hadramut uh, and Al-Mahra province. Uh, it's unlikely the Houthis are going to expand into that region. Uh, what, in fact, the Omanis find themselves now confronting is that the Saudis have essentially taken over this southeastern corner uh, of Yemen. Uh, and to all intents and purposes, have annexed Al-Mahra province to Saudi Arabia, which means that um, Saudi Arabia surrounds Oman even more than it used to in the past on the landward side of Oman's borders. Uh, that's troubling to the Omanis, but they're not going to go to war with Saudi Arabia over it. And they're going to try to uh, insist that in any peace process in Yemen, all foreign forces, Saudis, Iranians, Emiratis, have to leave all of Yemen's territory. And then the Yemenis will have to sort out who's in control of what. With the UAE being so involved in conflicts overseas at the moment, do you think they would ever look to pick a fight with Oman? Uh, I think it concerns the Omanis quite a lot. And, and you were right. The um, Emiratis essentially taking over Socotra Island uh, gives them a quite a large base in the region. I think this is very troubling for the Omanis, uh, but they're not going to um, go to war over control of it. Uh, their border with Oman is open, it's complex. They, they may disagree with the Emiratis on um, the projection of force in the region. Uh, the UAE is an avid projector of force. Oman is a risk-averse um, country, uh, but they're not going to let this come to blows. At the end of the day, the Gulf, the six Gulf Arab states are united uh, around a few very important principles. The most important of which is, of course, that they're all uh, monarchies. Uh, and in a part of the world which long ago uh, got rid of most of its monarchies, uh, they, uh, Jordan and Morocco, are throwbacks to an earlier era in which almost every country in the region was a monarchy. Uh, and they very much want to uh, keep that monarchical uh, style of government alive. With a volatile oil market and a destabilizing region, where do you see Oman in the next few years? 
Uh, Oman, like uh, its neighbors, uh, faces some very, very serious problems in the future. One is, as you alluded to, um, the world uh, is freeing itself from dependence on fossil fuels. Um, that may not look like it today when you go uh, fill your tank up at the gas station, but this is a bit of an anomaly. We are on the path towards uh, getting reduced dependence on fossil fuels. And that means that the importance of the Persian Gulf states is going to recede. The second, and I think even bigger problem is climate change. The climate in uh, the Arabian Peninsula has uh, always been very, very difficult, very hostile uh, place to live for human beings, uh, water scarcities. Uh, that's going to get much worse as climate change goes on. It's going to be harder and harder uh, to have any kind of functioning agricultural system. Uh, and with population growth, uh, which continues to happen in the Gulf states, um, they're facing uh, less income from oil, a much harsher climate to operate within, uh, and frankly, too many people uh, to support uh, a quality uh, lifestyle. So I think while not an urgent, immediate crisis, if you look out 30 years in the Gulf region, uh, there are very serious problems coming down the line. At this point, Oman seems stable, and the majority of the people seem content with the national bargain, trading wealth and comfort for democratic rights. But this area of the Middle East has a sort of Damocles hanging above its head, the reality of an eventually post-oil world. It's still a few decades away, but it is something that is inevitable. Even if it's 30 or 40 years down the track, it's a situation those in power will be leaving to their direct children. And whilst others in the Gulf are slowly trying to pivot in one direction or the other, Oman seems to be standing still. And as the saying goes, those who tread water in the middle of the river eventually get tired and drown. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. This was a really interesting episode to put together, and I can tell you that a number of the themes we covered here will be covered much more deeply in an upcoming mini-series we're working on at the moment. More details to come soon on that one. It's very exciting. But to keep up to date with everything we're doing at this moment, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at the Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle Mike Hilliard Oz. Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Sophie Fordo who is the latest Patreon to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like Sophie who donate a small amount of money each month to help us keep the show going. And we really can't thank them enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we'd greatly appreciate it. So Sophie Fordo, this episode on Oman is thanks to you. As usual, here are three book recommendations. The first is Oman under Caboose by Calvin Allen for a look at the impact Caboose has had on Oman. The second is The History of Modern Oman by Jeremy Jones for a broader look at the country's position in the Middle East. And the third is Yemen in Crisis by a friend of the show, Helen Lackner, for an insight into how disastrous the war in Yemen has become and why Oman worries about a similar fate. 
I want to thank this week's guests, Calvin Allen, Colby Connolly, and Bruce Rydell. All of you were absolutely fantastic to have on the program. I also want to thank my staff, producer Wade Kaur, Owen Swift, Perry Grace, Daniela Zivella, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Ross Crabtree, our media specialist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, as well as Jonah Gunn, our new production assistant. These people are what brings this show together, and I'm very lucky to have them on the team. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.